Hi, Natalie. Hello, Tara. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. How have you been this week in the heat? You've been surviving? Yeah. I did a lot of yard work this weekend, and I listened to a book, in, an audio book, in basically one and a half days, one Man. day and a couple hours the next, just doing yard work. Wow. That's, that's how impressive. much I was in the yard. You know, you should know how to multitask. I envy that. Yeah. It's, it's either I will listen to many albums in full or audiobook. Is the and book of, of note? What book did you read? Well, so I like to do things in cycles. So I just finished a Blondie book called Face It. Uh, sorry, Debbie Harry. She is Blondie in my opinion. I just call her Blondie. <laughs> sure, sure. But Debbie Harry's book called Face It. And so the next book I wanted to read, I wanted it to be fiction. So I think this book in particular was a top one of 2022 called The Maid. And it's just like a thriller mystery. But yeah, it was, it was, I don't know. It wasn't like that, like extraordinary, but it was entertaining. It passed the time. Did the, did the trick? Yeah, I was hooked. I was sucked in. But yeah, just your typical mystery novel. Mm. <laughs> well, speaking of mystery, I went to see the new Mission Impossible today. Ooh, how was that? Yeah. Uh, insane. It was really, really great. Really good. Really entertaining, considering the fact it's like almost three hours long. I stuck with it. It's incredibly oh, wow. silly. It's very silly, but in, in the fun kind of way. You know, it like pays homage to all the great like spy films and the spy tropes and things. And they do it in a really, really oh. fun way that's not irritating. And of course, the action sequences and the stunts are just insane. Just nut bar insane. Really cool. What was, I guess it would be a spoiler if I asked you, what was the like coolest just bit of action? Uh, I couldn't, it, Tom Cruise is just a madman. God bless him. But there's just so <laughs> I much was going to say, insanity. is he in it too? Oh, he's still, oh yeah. Oh, he's, he's doing it. He's going, he's going big. No signs of slowing down from that guy. But um, no, it's great. I think he did a great job in it. I won't spoil any of the stunts though, but it's, okay. it's yeah, it's, it, I think it's worth seeing in the theater. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Although I won't probably see it in the theater. I'm so bad at seeing movies. Uh, I, so I did see Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead recently, but that's because one of my friends like hosted the movie night. I was going to say, is that the last movie you saw in the theater? That's crazy. Not, not, from the, <laughs> not in the actual 80s, but yeah, it was just recently. Yeah. Um, and then I think before that was maybe Licorice Pizza. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's Paul Thomas Anderson movie from 2021. That was maybe the most recent like new film I've seen. Mm -hmm. Are you going to see Barbie? I absolutely am going to see Barbie. I think it'll be Everyone's a good time. Everyone's talking about that. I man, like every company on the internet is doing something related to marketing. Oh, for Barbie. Barbie has the most like. insane marketing push I've ever seen on any film ever. I don't think I've seen an ad that hasn't had some kind of pink. Barbie related thing integrated into it. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Good on them though. They'll make their money back, that's for sure. I mean, even companies that are not being paid to promote this movie are doing things related to Barbie just because it's like trending. Yeah. You know? And it's just such a, a cultural phenomenon. It's gonna <laughs> yeah. be huge. So it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And Oppenheimer. Yeah. I'll I won't see them at the same time. I know some some people are doing that, but that sounds kind of insane. And I've heard that seeing Oppenheimer first and then seeing Barbie is like quite psychologically jarring. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I'll, I'll keep those two things spaced apart so I can have time I can to imagine. Process. Yeah. You know what, though? I was thinking on my way into the store today, I feel like we never finished our conversation we had a while back about music technology. Do you remember? And I was trying to talk about looping. Oh, yeah. And we had it to close been the a store. Minute. Yeah, it has been a while. We never, never quite went back to that. Well, let's do it. Yeah. Got some more tech you want to <laughs> want to chat about? Oh, yeah. Okay. I always have tech I want to chat about. Sweet. Let's do that then. Well, I'm going to just dive back into looping since I, okay. got, I like fell so down the rabbit hole with the extended history <laughs> of looping. We went all the way back to the 1800s, but I want to pick up where we left off and kind of bring it, you know, into the millennium. So, yeah. So with live looping, basically you record and play back a piece of music in real time using either software or pedals. Last time we talked about Terry Riley who was one of the first musicians to use loops in his live performances in the early 60s with his time lag accumulator. We talked about that a little bit. 
There's a really cool video of this online because it's it's a little difficult to explain, but basically he's at his keyboard and in this specific clip, it's a Yamaha YC45D dual manual organ with a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder set up on either side. So he records music to the first recorder, which then loops around and plays back on the second recorder. And the output of the second recorder is routed back to the first one. And what's cool is like the length of that loop that's created, like the time it took to play back and reroute to the beginning was determined by the physical distance between those two reel-to-reels. And as it just cycled around, he could accumulate more audio input into the mix. Kind of a cool idea. So. Again, in the early 60s, there's this huge melting pot of composers coming together at the Tape Music Center in San Francisco. They basically create a new genre of minimalist music. So along with Riley, there were the two founders of the Tape Music Center, Morton Sabotnik and Ramon Sinder. Also, we have Pauline Oliveros, Richard Maxfield, Lamont Young, Steve Reich, Anthony Martin, and others. And live looping became a central feature of this musical style. With this time lag accumulator, it became possible for a solo performer to compose full arrangements to accompany themselves in real time. But I want to talk about another influential composer in the live looping scene, and that's Pauline Oliveras. She was also experimenting with this tech in the early 60s and created her own system of live tape looping and effects processing called the Expanded Instrument System. And it's cool, you can go on Google and search for like actual blueprints of all these these systems these folks are setting up and building. So you get kind of like a visual representation of what's actually happening. But yeah, Oliveros, she's sometimes overlooked in these conversations in favor of folks like Riley and Reich. But the truth is she had been releasing her experimental tape compositions a few years before they were. So she is also definitely a pioneer of this movement. Very cool. Yeah, I've, I've actually never, I've never heard of her. Yeah. And I have heard a lot about Terry Riley and Steve Reich. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised I've never heard of this fabulous person. Yeah, she's got a, a very vast body of work. I wanted to play a sample um, of hers from 1965, her piece, Bye Bye Butterfly. Then in the early 70s, Brian Eno, and Robert Fripp joined forces. Eno had put together a similar system to the ones created by Riley and Oliveros. And initially he invited Fripp to come play guitar over his tracks that were composed with loops. But then Fripp took it a step further, refining the system into something that could be used for solo performances and improvisation. And his girlfriend at the time, poet and lyricist Joanna Walton, coined the system the Frippertronics. So the Frippertronics worked pretty much the same as the time lag accumulator, but it also could play pre-recorded loops using two modded Revox A77 reel-to-reel decks. Um, if you're curious, there are videos on YouTube of folks recreating the Frippertronics setup that are pretty interesting to watch. Hmm. So before we approach the millennium, I have to mention one important milestone for live looping that I didn't get to last time, and that's Les Paul and Mary Ford. So Les Paul, probably best known for innovating the solid body electric guitar, but also he, alongside singer and then wife Mary Ford, together, they were likely the original live loopers. In 1953, the couple were featured on the CBS program Omnibus, where they demonstrated how live looping works. Here they're performing the song, How High the Moon, and they actually add a guitar and vocal part to the recording's existing 24 tracks live on the air. They're using a multi-track Ampex tape recorder to which Les Paul had added a playback head. Since then, the tech has evolved, of course, and composers now can create these looping effects with digital hardware like guitar pedals, as well as software like Ableton Live. In the 1980s, digital delay processors became available, replicating the tape function. Uh, we had the Roland SDE 3000, the Lexicon PCM42, 
and the TC2290, for example. And with these models, you could change the loop length, but it wasn't intuitive. It was still very experimental and it was challenging to match rhythms precisely. But these definitely served as inspirations for further innovation. And then dedicated live looping hardware arrived in the early 90s. Guitarist and sound engineer Matthias Grobe of Switzerland had been live looping with a modified PCM42 in the late 80s, which became the prototype for the Paratus loop delay in 1992. Now this was the first dedicated piece of hardware for looping. The Paratus loop delay was then licensed to Gibson and re-released as the Echoplex Digital Pro in 1994. Other early looping devices include the Lexicon Jamman developed by Gary Hall, who also began by modifying the Lexicon PCM42 uh, to allow delay synchronization to an external source. Bob Selen then expanded on those mods and with the rest of the Lexicon team, created the Jamman. And I should mention too, that Gary Hall was the primary architect of the PCM42 and Matthias Grobe, who I mentioned, he worked out his modifications, the precursor for the Paratus loop delay on Gary Hall's personal PCM42 unit. So, and by the way, the Jamman is unrelated to the Digitech Jamman, which is another looper pedal, but these are two different items. Um, also, we had the original Boomerang Phrase Sampler in 1995, developed by Mike Nelson and Lee Hardesty. Now, this can play back in reverse, change playback speed, reverse your signal in real time, all kinds of fun effects. And to this day, Boomerang loopers are an industry favorite used by big names like Ed Sheeran and KT Tunstall. So that's, that's kind of where we are now. I want to talk about a few folks who've really taken this technology and run with it and done some really cool stuff with live looping. Um, I mentioned Ed Sheeran, of course, who's probably the most popular example right now. A lot, of, a lot of clips on him demonstrating how he works with the pedal to make his songs. Um, one of my favorite looping performances is from Kimbra. You know, I love Kimbra. And she does a version of her song, Settle Down, with a looping deck and every single version she does because she's building the layers with her her voice every version is different and like just dope in its own way she's so great live i love her um here's a little bit of that i want to settle Katie Tunstall, of course. Reggie Watts is another great example. There's a Japanese Buddhist monk on YouTube named Yogetsu Akasaka, who does really cool live looping sessions where he's like beatboxing and chanting, and it's it's a vibe. Check that out. Also, Tash Sultana and Elise Tro, who does really cool mashup covers with looping. Um, here's a bit of her original song, See Through. So she's, she's cool. She moves from instrument to instrument, building up all the layers with no pedals. So it just looks, she just like plays a thing and gets up and walks somewhere else and does something else. Um, it's wild, but she actually uses Ableton Live with some elaborate MIDI triggering setup. It's seamless. She makes it look like magic. Her performances are really fun to watch. Yeah, really impressive. So those are just a few of the artists. I don't know. Do you have any other live looping artists that you can think of? Yeah. I was actually waiting to see if you were going to mention this person, Mark Rabot. Not Mark Rabot, Mark Ribelet. But I think he uses, I don't know what he uses, I shouldn't even try to guess, but he'll like maybe beatbox a beat and then he'll play some keys and then he'll start singing over the top of it. But he has a lot of uh, really hilarious videos on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. <laughs> There's, I think, one that's like, wake the fuck up, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> your alarm song, potentially. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, he just does a lot of really funny stuff with, with looping, but he's, he's really funky and fun. It's cool. I like oh, him. Yeah. That's like nice. one I just thought of off the top of my head. But of course, there's so many electronic artists that do more experimental type looping. I guess more in the vein of Steve Reich and Terry Riley. Yeah, I was I did not know that Ed Sheeran 
ever did anything related to looping. So that was a kind of a new one for oh, me. Yeah. I think I've seen the same Kimbra thing that you've talked about or that you mentioned. Yeah, she's got a few different versions online and they're all great. She's she's really cool. She's really she's very experimental and really brave. She doesn't try to go for the same thing twice, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I love how every performance is fresh and different. I feel like too, also with on top of like DJs and EDM producers using it, the singer songwriter has really embraced this technology too, right? Because now you can truly be a one man show. So we have a lot yeah. of that. I feel like to, I got to be completely honest though. I'm a little burned out on the live looping thing because I feel like it became yeah. such a moment in the last few years. Like everybody was doing it. It just got to be like a little irritating. But every once in a while, I'll hear somebody who does something completely novel with it and my mind is blown all over again. Um, so I'm still into it. When it works, it works. Not a looping device band by any means, but there's this band called Dawn of Midi and they they loop patterns on their live instruments just over and over and they create a beat with like a bass, upright bass. I think there is a simple drum kit, but there's one guy will like pluck his inside of the, the inside of his piano. He'll like pluck the, what are those? Those aren't strings. You know what I'm talking about? What are those? Are they strings? They are strings. (laughs) Okay. I'm like, what, what? I don't play piano, so I'm just like, what are they again? I've definitely seen it, but is it actually a string or is it like a wire? Anyways, yeah, they, they like loop their instruments. They are playing the notes over and over and over again, so it just like loops and loops, but it'll shift and change in such a way that you're like, oh no, someone's off a little bit, but then it just totally changes and it's the coolest, coolest thing. Maybe let's listen to a little clip of Dawn and Mitty too, just because. Just as a little correction or clarification, piano strings, that is what they are, but it does, it is partly wire. It is wire. Okay. Yeah. I was like, they seem more like hard. It's a a type of wire (laughs) that's used in the creation of piano strings. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Thanks for confirming. I've never actually touched one, you know, like I've seen them and the dude is obviously like, right. Like I've seen it and the guy's like obviously plucking the things, but I I don't know because I've never touched that myself. So I don't know if it's like string or or what. Like what is it that you're actually plucking in there, you know? That's a good question. I mean, string could just be the verb too, like restringing the piano. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who knows? The piano is a mystery. A marvelous invention (laughs) in music technology. Now I really want to know. I'll I'll look that up later. Okay. So that's it. I'm done. That's it. Live looping. Oh. Get into it. Wow. Full circle we came from the 1800s to today. To yeah. Ed Sheeran. <laughs> yeah. To Ed Sheeran. Right. Wow. He's he's carrying the legacy forward. That's cool. I mean, so back when we were talking about looping, you had also talked about one of an early inventor. I think it was a French inventor. And I'm forgetting his name now, but he, I think he w- was part partly responsible for etching onto foil, which became electric current. You could listen to this like etching through this device, and that was kind of like the start of your your looking into looping. Yeah, that was Emil Berliner, the German inventor, who came to DC and obtained the patent for the gramophone. Oh, okay, yeah. So. Related to that history, I was digging into the history of headphones and how we were consuming music before headphones and how it changed how the world consumes not Mm. only music, but media in general. So I, I was digging into the history of headphones. So in case you're from another planet, headphones are pairs of small loudspeaker drivers worn on or around the head to allow a user to listen to music privately. Yeah, maybe you are someone on the bus or the subway and you you haven't heard of this concept called headphones and you're just playing your music out of your phone loudly, <laughs> which is very annoying because it sounds like shit <laughs> and other people don't want to hear your shitty music. Mm-hmm. So listen, headphones are where it's at. Anyways, <laughs> I digress. Pet peeve. <laughs> it needs to be said. How did we... Yeah. <laughs> 
How did we get here? How did people listen to music before those little white AirPods that everyone is wearing these days? You can literally walk down the street and see so many people just wearing those white AirPods. But it was actually this crazy mastermind named Nathaniel Baldwin from Utah in his kitchen, no less. He created the first pair of headphones before World War I. But before this creation, music was a social thing. People were enjoying songs together in church, listening to compositions in concert halls, or even playing instruments in their own homes, enjoying stories told in open air opera houses, and so on and so forth. It was very social. It was a gathering. You couldn't listen to music unless you were in a place listening with other people or in your own home, someone was there playing it. Yeah, so not too long ago, Natalie, you and I were talking about the history of enjoying music as related to the history of the LP. And that's where we learned about some listening machines from the early 1800s, such as the phonautograph, Thomas Edison's phonograph from 1877, Alexander Graham Bell and his graphophone, and Berliner's gramophone in 1887. But headphones actually grew out of the need to free up a person's hands when operating a telephone. So it was like based on an operator's needs, someone who's operating the telephone system. Before, you could just call someone, you dialed the number, and it got there. Before, it's it was a person on the other side connecting you to the other person. And so telephone switchboard operators needed these head apparatus, apparatuses, apparati, something like that, to, you know, make sure they're connecting the calls, but they're not listening to all of the people that are also connecting calls with other reception operators in the 1800s. So, so yeah, soon after the invention of the telephone, telephone switchboard operators began to use these head headgear to mount the telephone receiver. The receiver was mounted on the head by a clamp which held it next to the ear. The head mount freed the switchboard operator's hands so that he or she could easily connect the wires of the telephone callers and receivers. The head-mounted telephone receiver in the singular form was called a headphone. These head-mounted phone receivers, not like modern headphones at all, only had one earpiece. But yeah, this allowed a lot of people in one room to sit together and listen to different audio. And headphones for listening pleasure followed kind of soonish after in the in 1890s, after the company Electrophone used earpieces to deliver music from opera houses in London to paying subscribers. But those also did not look like the headphones that we know today. For one thing, they weren't worn on the head. This is not practical because they were heavy. The earpieces worn by the telephone operators could weigh almost like 10 pounds and they sat on their shoulders. The contraption used by Electrophone for music listening resembled a doctor's stethoscope. In 1910 is when Nathaniel Baldwin claimed that he had built a new kind of headset in his kitchen that could amplify sound. The military, he took it to the military, because he was in the Navy himself, I think. The military asked for a sound test, and they were blown away. The Navy radio officers said that the device was comfortable and efficient. And so the modern headphone was born. Nathaniel Baldwin called it the radio headset, but it sat comfortably on the head. It had two ear cups, and they were connected by a headband in the design that headphones have maintained basically to present day. But the sound, it was... Mono, but it was decent. It was pretty good. The Navy was eager to order a bunch of these devices, but Baldwin's production was confined to runs of 10 headsets uh, at a time because he was making them in his kitchen. On top of these limitations, he refused to patent his design. He thought that the innovation was too small to warrant such a patent, unfortunately. (laughs) I know. But this led to many other successful copies and also contributed to Baldwin's financial ruin. Poor Nathaniel Baldwin. (laughs) I know. Very short-sighted of him. He was so excited too. Why? Why did you? Come on, buddy. Anyways, so the next big innovation in the history of headphones came from Germany. 
1924, a young engineer named Eugene, Eugene, I don't know how they pronounce this in Germany, but I'm calling him Eugene Bayer. Eugene Bayer founded the Elektrotechnische Fabrik in Berlin and 1937 became known as Bayer Dynamic brought the first dynamic headphones, the DT48. These headphones were capable of much higher levels uh, and sounded way better than Baldwin's radio headset. Bayer Dynamics headphones retained Baldwin's basic design, but substantially improved the wearing comfort. So it was quite a leap into the future, but with some slight retoolings to improve the sound. I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about this. The gentleman making these things out of his kitchen... <laughs> He's working with the Navy, correct? Yeah, yes. And they did not provide any f- any funds or resources to expand his operation? They were ordering the headsets from him, so they were paying him. But because he didn't patent his invention, other people became more successful because they took basically his idea and like improved it. And he couldn't keep up with demand because he was just making those in his kitchen. You know, he like... Yeah, I feel like like they would have set him up a little bit better than that. Right. You mean you would think, but it seems like he made some bad business decisions. All all the wrong (laughs) things. Cautionary cautionary tale how not to have a music tech career. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Fast forward. The 1950s brought in a new era of personal listening enjoyment thanks to several key developments. Rising incomes the invention of stereo, and the introduction of the LP, which we've learned about before. We've talked about the LP in the store before, so I'm going to break the fourth wall here and say, go back and listen to that episode. Anyways, so if music evolved as social glue for the human species, as a way to make groups and keep them together, headphones allowed music to be enjoyed friendlessly. Savor your privacy. 1958, John C. Koss, an American jazz musician, invented a set of stereo headphones designed explicitly for personal music consumption. So now we're talking. Before we were, right, before we were really talking about like operators and like, you know, on the job type stuff. Now we're listening to music. Thank you, John C. Koss, jazz musician from America. (laughs) So according to Keir. Kitely, not Keir Knightley, but Keir Kitely, a professor of media studies at the University of Western Ontario. In that decade, middle-class men began shutting out their families with giant headphones and hi-fi equipment. Nice. <laughs> Man, I can relate, um, except for I don't really have family, maybe just shutting out the world. Headphones did for music what writing and literacy did for language. They made it private. Koss's headphones promised something close to a live music experience, but there was still a problem. You could not connect the headphones to your home stereo system, which, yeah, there were no outputs at the time. So Koss's next contribution to the audio innovation world was to convince audio manufacturers to include standardized connections for headphones. I would like to tell Apple a big F you for changing <laughs> the standard audio output You're regressing us, right? <laughs> right. Ah, I'm getting ahead of myself there. But let's talk about wireless headphones for a second. So decades before Bluetooth technology existed, wireless headphones already invaded the market. They were already widely used in the 1960s and 1970s. These headphones are known as radio headphones, and they were exactly, as the name suggests, using built-in AM, FM radio antennas and two-inch speakers in each padded ear cup. I think we're all familiar with those, right? Like I feel like I remember... seeing those as a child, still widely used in the 80s. Yeah, And yeah, this just allowed people to bring their radio and listen wherever they want. And in 1958, RCA would then change the future of home music consumption again by introducing the RCA tape cartridge. Before this cartridge, magnetic tape wasn't a realistic option for home use as reel-to-reel players were too complicated for consumers and especially compared to record players, which had been the de facto like standard for all home listening for decades at that point. A number of systems tried to gain dominance in the market for magnetic tapes, but it wasn't until 1964 that home audio would unite around a new format, 
the eight track tape. Oh yeah. Rockin'. Uh, my parents still have some of those. <laughs> we probably do too. I should raid my home garage next time I'm there. Rescue them. Yeah. Go dig them out. I can't imagine Don't what would be in them. that collection. Oh no. I'll cherish yeah. them. Hang on to that. Yeah. So by the late 60s, all Ford's cars were offered with an available A-Track player as an upgrade. And hundreds of tapes were released with the catalog that rivaled that of vinyl. But here we go again. It's just, everything is just advancing so quickly. I mean, because I just mentioned cost inventing that headset just for personal music consumption. That was 1958. And again, the... Nathaniel Baldwin, that was like 1910, so we have 1958 um, with the headphones. And then fast forward again to um, 1958 with the magnetic cartridge and A-Tracks. And, you know, you could then in the 60s get a car with an A-Track player. But then... It's really fascinating how much technological advancement happened for music like in that World War II era. Yeah. I know lots of lots of things were being developed for the sake of communication, of course, but just think about all of the yeah. music tech we got out of that. These headphones yeah. and magnetic tape and the LP, all that stuff. It just like yeah. put it in hyperspeed. Gramophone. Yeah. yeah, totally. Jukeboxes, radio transmission, all of it. Like it's just pushed music mm-hmm. so far ahead. But Phillips shrunk the design and crafted a cassette tape for people to record with. So in 1966, Nina Simone, Eartha Kitt, and Johnny Mathis were among the first artists to record an album released on audio cassette. And then by the 70s, people were listening to their favorite musicians from the comfort of their homes and cars with cassette tapes. Nice. But you might be wondering, why am I bringing up eight tracks and cassettes when the topic is headphones, though? It all comes together in 1979 with a little invention by Sony. I know, I know. The Walkman. (laughs) Sorry, I should have let you answer that one. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I knew one. I was excited. Yes, the Walkman. Who can forget? The Walkman. What a cultural reset, that thing. Man, groundbreaking. Boom boxes, they were big. They were heavy. You probably look really cool walking down the street with a boom box on your shoulder, but they were designed for use with a group of friends or announcing one's taste in music to the world. Again, not from your phone on a train. This is an actual radio. The idea of enjoying music outside in private was brought to life by the Walkman. The portable battery-powered cassette player came with small, lightweight headphones. The earpieces were covered with foam, and the sound was not exactly hi-fi, but still pretty good. So for the next two decades, joggers, commuters were limited to single cassette tape or the radio. And this led to many intensely familiar with their favorite journey, Talking Heads and Michael Jackson albums. You know, just flipping the cassette over and over. Mm-hmm. Side A, side B, side A, side B. And the use of headphones for private listening experience evolved even more in 1989 with the innovative invention of noise-canceling headphones. We just keep getting further and further out there. But again, like, this is only 1989. I mean, so 1979, the Walkman came around. Now it's 1989 and we have noise-canceling headphones. These things are moving fast. But yeah, the history of noise-canceling headphones started years earlier with various designs of patents dating back to 1950s. But those designs weren't developed into what we know today until the work of Dr. Amar Bose. Yes, that Bose. You know the one. Mm-hmm. Basically, noise-canceling headphones work with a small microphone that captures all the outside noise and generates an equal opposite sound wave to cancel out the noise. So cool. Like, I can't believe someone is like, is thinking about that, you know? Yeah. It's blowing. It's uh, really effective too. I love, I have multiple pairs of noise canceling headphones and earbuds because that's just how I roll. And yeah, yeah, I I get the science. I understand how it works, but it's just still like, it's kind of magic-y. I like it. It is. (laughs) Just shut out the rest of the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm always blown away when I put on a really good pair. I'm like, oh, I can't hear anything. Right. Or if they have a switch, you know, like a switch where yeah. you can change them to be regular headphones and then you switch it and it's like, nothing, quiet. This technology proved useful for pilots in the aviation industry, combat vehicle crewmen in the army, but of course it expanded into popularity for personal use. And then by the late 1990s, 
MP3 players began to emerge, and that allowed users to store multiple albums on a portable device. And Apple, of course, brought upon us in around around 2001 the iPod, which revolutionized music listening even further with its intuitive user interface and replaced the foamy headphones everyone had been using um, with those small space age, for the time, looking white earbuds. I wonder, I have a question for you. Yeah. So I don't know if you came across this information in your in your research at all, but like from the Walkman, the cassette Walkman to like CD player, portable oh, yeah, CD players. Discman. Yeah, the Discman's. Um, do you know like which one of those was more popular in terms of selling? I didn't really look up any stats on sales or marketing in that sense, no. Um, I just kept it to innovation and mm-hmm. like what happened next kind of a thing. Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to know how that like the parallel between, you know, the the shift from cassette technology to CDs and did, yeah. did those sell more? Was that like a bigger a bigger deal? Because I know like cassettes yeah. are kind of making a comeback. The Walkman is making a little comeback now. Right? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. They never like went away exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Like a track pretty much went away. Although I think there are some bands that are now putting out a tracks as like a new sort of novel way of uh, putting the music out. Bringing but that yeah, back. I don't. No one really has an a track. <laughs> I know, right? Don't know about that. Yeah. But I think the Walkmans are pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember when I had my Discman and I like go and mow the yard or something. Any little tiny bump, any tiny bump, that thing would skip. You know? Right. It was so annoying, that would be so but. irritating. I don't miss the little foam covered plastic <laughs> ear buddies either. No. Yeah, yeah. Me either. Comfort has definitely gotten better. Yeah. Although those, the AirPods, they feel a little bit too big sometimes. And I also prefer the wired ones, ear pods over the AirPods, just because I just feel like they're going to fall out at any moment, you know? So I'd like to have them connected. You, they don't have like sizing <laughs> options. I don't, I'm, I left the Apple ecosystem um, a long time ago. I think they do now with the latest iteration, but I don't think I have like the small size or anything like that. I don't know. Uh, I think they are getting That's a bummer. more customizable like that though. But yeah, there's still a lot more advancement to come. So let's get back into it. Mm -hmm. So we had just talked about iPod and the earbuds from Apple in 2001. There have been a lot of extensive upgrades to headphones over the decades. Uh, One thing had pretty much always been consistent and that's that wires were connecting them to the audio source. That changed, though, with the invention of Bluetooth. Bluetooth technology had been under development since 1999, but while early versions could support voice calls, the bandwidth couldn't really handle streaming audio music. As we got into the 2010s, though, headphones continued to grow by popularity and became increasingly integrated with fashion. Dr. Dre famously released his Monster Beats by Dr. Dre. Big, bulky, bold. You were, I guess, supposedly it if you had these, though I always heard they were shitty quality and they just look too big and bulky for me. It's a fashion accessory. Did you have some? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, no. How dare uh, you, Tara? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you were the type, no. That was, okay, that anyways, was a little too aggressive. But yeah, I think those are just a fashion yeah. piece. Which, yeah, I mean, no, and hey, that's... They're cool looking. It makes sense, right? Like, it makes sense. I mean, even in the 60s, I think, uh, there was a version of like Beatles headphones that were kind of similar. They were bulky and they were big and they were Beatles designed. I don't know. I'm sure you could Google that and find a great picture. I think music and fashion go hand in hand. And so it makes sense that we have something like that that sort of changed the look and feel of something uh, like headphones after Apple brought on the AirPods or earbuds. So again, Apple comes back on the scene 2017 with a major change in the design of their iPhone and earbuds, moving away from wired earpods to the incredibly lightweight, weighing only four grams each, AirPods. And even, and those included the feature to double tap to pause the audio or automatically pause the music when you take them out of your ear, which is like next level crazy awesome. Or if they just fall out of your tiny little ear, you don't miss any part of your audiobook. <laughs> it just automatically pauses. 
All right. The 20th century did a number on music technology. Radio made music transmittable. Cars made music mobile. Speakers made music big. And silicon chips made music small. But headphones might just represent one of the most important inflection point in music history. Just changed everything. Changed the game entirely. Headphones have the capacity to make our music like our thoughts. Something no one else can hear. Something we can choose to share if we want. But it's like a personal environment. You know, it's a shield for listeners from those walking around us or those in maybe in the, in the same room. And they've changed our social lives and how we consume music and other media. But yeah, it's like not even strictly related to music. You can connect with other people using headphones because now, especially the um, AirPods have the built-in microphone, you can talk with other people from your computer, from your phone, from your, and you're still hearing them in your headphones. Even the word headphones now, it feels like antiquated now that we have AirPods, you know, headphones. It's not, not necessarily something that's going over your head. It's in your head now. And so, yeah, it's just completely changed music consumption or media consumption forever. But it's also changed the world of music production. So I wanted to dig into this a little bit further too. Headphones take room reverberation and acoustics totally out of the equation. So if you're mastering something, instead of listening to it out loud on a big speaker where you have to consider how the acoustics of the room changes the music that you're listening to, with headphones, it changes it in a different way. You kind of can cut that out of the equation, but it does still greatly alter the sound source and affects how music is created. So because they're smaller speakers on your head, or in your head if you're listening to AirPods, small speakers can't create or can't reproduce low frequencies, nor do they allow the space needed for low frequency to travel. So a master engineer would have to take all of these things into account and probably have to use plugins to specifically allow low frequency harmonic generation, which pushes production technology even further into the future by you know, having these audio engineers creating all of these different plugins. And yeah, now there's this huge market for plugins for producing at home. And yeah, maybe you want to add more reverb to a voice or control the higher frequencies because with earbuds or headphones, they are better producing higher frequencies. So the higher frequency range would need to be monitored and controlled to make sure it's not shitty, <laughs> basically. And yeah, and if anything is made clear by the popularization of headphones, it's just that the changing of technology used to create and consume and proliferate music changes the music itself. This is like my big aha moment. So in other words, the tools we use to listen to music, whether it's the LP, the Discman, the Walkman, headphones, earpods, airpods, the radio, the tools we use to listen to and create music have the power to change that music. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's crazy, right? Because yeah, you listen to it in a concert hall, you're listening to an orchestra, you know, versus, I don't know, anything else after that <laughs> changed. Everything changed. So yeah. Well, think about how social it. media has changed, at least popular music. You know, songs yeah. are becoming a lot shorter and they're, yes. they're made for the TikTok audience, you know? Totally. So. Yeah. And oh yeah, even the invention of the LP changed how musicians were composing music. So that just goes to show you too, because you know, if it's too long, it doesn't fit on one side. What are you going to do? You want them to flip it over in the midst of this crescendo? No, you can't have that. That would be terrible. So yeah, uh, the tools we use to consume music have changed how music is created. That's just... I got to say though, I, I do still crazy. have some nostalgia for the that 80s, 90s, Walkman cassette flipping experience because I feel like albums that 100%. were on cassette it was like it was very much a a and b experience right yeah it was like the storytelling and there was something really pivotal about that flip to the other side you know totally but even that is like changed how music was at least organized in the sense that yeah. you got all the radio hits on one side and then you got the B-sides on the flip side. You know, like the the, the B-side songs were the like least popular deep cuts as we know them today. Yeah, 
It's wild to think about, but I'm with you. Sometimes I'm like, I have to look at title to see, wait, are you playing something new now at the end of my, (laughs) at the end of my album that I'm listening to? And they've moved on to some other thing and I've kind of lost track of where the album ended, you know, or the song, maybe if it's switched to something else and it's auto playing. But yeah, I agree with you 100%. And it's so much more tactile to be involved in your music listening experience, having to get up and flip the record. I don't have one of those turntables that sort of like automatically flips or anything fancy like that, or even moves the arm over. I don't have an automatic arm on my turntable. So I still have to manually get up and change or like remove the arm so it doesn't Mm -hmm. scratch the needle on the label. So yeah, I'm with you 100%. I think there's something nice to and even even like that. the feel and the sound of the cassette when you took it out and turned it, it was like part of it. You know, one of my favorite sounds of all time, and if, this is totally random, and I'm going to bring up Prince, Purple Rain, is when he's listening to his cassettes. There's something about the fidelity of that that sound when he is putting the cassette in the player. That yeah. really stuck with me. It's just so like, it's so thick and tactile. Like, I love it. So I, yeah. I like the sound of cassettes. Yeah, I mean... Even, I'm going to break the fourth wall again. Here, before we play a clip of the songs, we have that turntable arm. You can hear it automatically connecting to the record and lowering and then moving back. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. But what's next, Natalie? Augmented hearing? Real-time language interpretation? They're, they're They're getting deeper and deeper into our heads, into our skulls, eventually. Yeah. Just transmit it straight to our brain stems. <laughs> but yeah, real-time language interpretation would be kind of sick. Oh, yeah. It's 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 coming, man. They do All have those headphones that are like bone vibrating headphones. You know what I'm talking about? What? I do not. What is the sorcery? Yeah, these bone conduction headphones. They, I guess, they transmit sound through directly through the bones of the skull instead of the eardrum. So you can still technically hear the outside environment. Uh. <laughs> Supposedly uh. Beethoven used bone conduction when he lost his hearing. The word bone is throwing me off. I don't want anything interacting with my bones. I get it. Ugh, I, uh, I'm going to have to marinate on that one. Maybe yeah. not the first iteration of these things. Let them yeah, bone rattling. It. Bone rattling. rattling. Great. <laughs> Appealing. Do you own any, um, I just, I'm just want to be like, yeah. I just want to chat gear now. Do you have noise canceling headphones? I do. Um, what do you have? I, well, I have the, the AirPods have that option now. The okay. AirPod Pro or whatever they're called. I have those, but I don't, again, I don't like to wear them because I feel like they're uncomfortable in my ears. Yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. I have a date piercing, so it's kind of a pain in the ass sometimes with certain shaped earbuds to get them to sit right. Yeah. But I have the Sony XM4s, the headphones. Yeah. And then I got, I have a set of earbuds. These are the Bose Quiet Comfort 2s. Ooh, fancy. Man, Bose speakers always sound so nice. I like these. They're not messing around when they say noise canceling. It, it's, it's good for me. I love the Sony Studio Pro, just standard headphones. I have two pairs of them. I use them for DJing and I'm on my third pair. I just think that they're such a standard. They sound great. They're not like too stiff. The only thing is like over time, some of the black from the little like cover, earphone cover starts to flake off if you use them too much. Oh yeah. Constantly finding little flaky. Yeah. Yeah. Cup material um, everywhere. But yeah, I know. So, and another thing is like, I didn't really talk about music, like actual m- music that we could listen to in the store. So I thought it would be cool to know what are your favorite songs to listen to exclusively with headphones? Because I feel like there's a lot of music out there that has like such good texture, or maybe just like the way it's panned in certain directions. Some songs are just way more cool to listen or more interesting to listen to with headphones. Do you have a favorite? And that goes to everyone in the store listening right now. Let us know what your favorite songs are to listen exclusively with headphones. There's like Bjork, uh, James Blake is a good example for me. 
Oh, Hyper Ballad. That is a good one yeah. for headphones. Also, the song Headphones by Bjork are oh, great for yeah. listening to in headphones. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I said James Blake, his The Color in Anything, that album, has got a track on there called Modern Soul. That song Roads by Portishead, it, it makes it feel like you're listening to it. You know when you're driving down the road and maybe you have only one window like partially down and you get that sort of helicopter effect. It feels like you're like this air in the car is vibrating. That's how I feel like listening to Roads by Portishead sounds in your headphones. It feels like that. It's like, it feels like you're tapping your ears, creating that like suction vacuum. While my guitar gently weeps, there's some panning on Revolver that the Beatles do that just changes how like the music sounds. And if you're just listening to it on the radio or in your car, you don't hear it as well. But when you listen to it on your headphones, you're like, oh yeah, this is why people are obsessed with the Beatles. Like, I get it, you know? The Cocteau Twins are pretty much all wonderful to listen to with headphones as well. Anyways, that's pretty much it. That's all I got to say about headphones. <laughs> I like Jay Dilla in headphones. Oh yeah, anything. Sam- the Avalanches, same. That stuff's mm. good. The sampled stuff is really fun to listen to with headphones. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is really a fun chat. Full circle. I learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't even scratched the surface. There's so much more out there, so much cool stuff. I know. About. What's next, though? Like, I'm still just every time we talk about this stuff, it just kind of blows my mind. The virtual reality stuff, the AI stuff, things are just changing rapidly. Changing so much. But I think you're right. I mean, a lot of this stuff really was triggered by some of the communication changes in the, um, like with the telephone and some of that stuff that happened during World War One. And I think we're we're hitting, I think we're going to hit or are in the midst of another one of those like hyper advancement periods. Yeah. Just a lot of stuff. Definitely. Is happening at the same time. AI is changing so much. I mean, every app now uses AI. Chat GPT, like all of this stuff. So yeah. We're on the verge of another shift. But I do like how in some ways, especially with music consumption, it's gone backwards in a sense, at least for like vinyl becoming really popular as a way to um, buy and uh, explore artists' music and support them, you know, outside of streaming. It is cool because I think about how much the way we've experienced music has changed, but none of those old methods have died. Like we still do it. We still like to congregate in a building in a nice, in a hall with nice acoustics and listen (laughs) to an orchestra. That's true. Still like to listen to cassettes, vinyl and all that. So I just think it's, it's nice that people can still appreciate the variety of experience you can have listening to music. Nothing's going to beat, nothing's going to match the feeling of sitting in a room with people having this musical experience, you know? Totally. That'll never die. Yeah. Sweet. Well, I can't wait for our next chat about music tech. I'll have to think of a a good topic. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, true. Me too. If anyone has any ideas, send them our way. Yeah. If you're curious about something, let us know and we'll we'll be detectives, street detectives. Yeah. But now I think I'm going to go listen to an audiobook and cook some dinner. (laughs) Rockin'. I'll probably do something very similar with my noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> nice. All right. Let's get out All right, of here. everybody. We'll see you next time. Adios. Bye. Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.